Good morning, everyone. If you're visiting here and you're looking for Randy Boltinghouse, I am not him. I don't even play him on TV, so. This morning I want to talk a little bit about uh, chapter 4 and verse Timothy that, that uh, Lisa just read for us, or spoke for us. And, um, but before we do that, I want to pray a little bit. God, we are so thankful that we are here this morning. And I'm thankful to see your people praising you this morning, standing in awe of you this morning. And I thank God, I thank you every day for, um, for this congregation of believers that you have placed me in and for the love that they have for you and the evidence of that love in their lives. For it's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Most of you know, some of you know, maybe you don't know. We'll find out here in a minute. But I grew up in, uh, I uh, grew up in Kansas. Um, we lived on Fort Dodge Road outside of Dodge City, Kansas. Uh, we lived one mile east of Fort Dodge. And, and the other night I did a Google Earth look at what that area looks like because what I think it looks like and what it looks like now is totally different. But now there, we lived uh, on 13 acres. We had one of these wonderful old farmhouses um, that burned down so you can't see a picture of it. And, uh, and, but if you look on, the, on that picture right there, that's pretty much what, what the back, what our 13 acres look like. And there we are um, as we moved there you see four kids about a year apart. That's why my mom has white hair. Um, all four teenagers at the same time. I can't imagine. And so we used to roam in the hills. That was what, one of my favorite things to do. When, we, when we'd, we moved there when I was a kindergartner, first grader, first grader. And uh, it's always amazing. The stories that come to my like, I shouldn't say that. But anyway, came as a first grader. And after a couple of years, we, I, one of my favorite things to do was to go roaming in the hills. So we would get up, my sister and I would go, because we like to get up early and just go walking. And so we'd get up um, at five in the morning and come downstairs and we'd make cream wheat in the cream wheat pan. And uh, because I don't know how my mom decided, but it was an electric stove, I was thinking about that today. So it was safe-ish. And... But she was sitting, I remember she was always sitting at the table drinking her coffee and she wouldn't say a word to us probably because she was trying to figure out why her kids are up at five in the morning. And so after we'd eat our breakfast and put our dishes in the sink, then we'd say, mom, we're going to go out for a walk. And she'd mumble something like, be careful, or I don't remember what she said, but it's probably she didn't even hear us. Uh, but we'd go out walking and we went out in the hills and as far as the eye could see, we could walk for hours and not see anything but barbed wire fences some cattle, occasional horse, jackrabbits. Occasionally we saw a snake. Once I saw a rattler out there and red ants. And, and I'll tell you about the red ants in a minute. And so we, and what I loved to do when we were out there was we'd just go walking and you could, it was just amazing out there now that I think back about it because, because you could stand perfectly still and you wouldn't hear anything. You'd hear the wind coming through the, grass and you'd hear the meadow larks singing in the background and then you can hear it right you hear all that stuff just nothing going on out there 
And, and we get to a field, we had to make sure there were no red ants, because one time I laid down in a field on top of some, a red ant hill, it's not a fun thing, don't do that. And so we laid down, uh, and we would look up at the sky, and we'd either watch this, the sun come up, depending on how, what time we got out there, or we'd just look at clouds floating over those big fluffy summer clouds that you can only see in Kansas, apparently you can't see them in Illinois. And, and I, you know, it, we were so far out, my dad said that we would, or even the jackrabbits would have to take a lunch. It was that far out in the middle of nowhere. And it would take us hours to walk back, and then we'd have chores to do. And now, when I think back about this, I just want to go there. You know, that kind of quietness where phones don't ring and people, <laughs> for instance. Mine's turned down, so I made sure of that. And then I started this business a couple of three years ago, and, and I had an inkling what it would be like, but I had no idea. And some of you who run your own business, you understand completely what I'm talking about. There's always something to do. There's one, one more computer to fix. There's accounting work. There's paperwork. There's organization. There's people calling me on the phone. There's people emailing me. There's people texting me. There's, I don't have IM, thankfully, so they don't uh, IM me. Well, actually, now we do. Uh, and my technician, well, I, it's just like interruption after interruption after interruption. And, and what I noticed was living in that lifestyle for, for, a long, for about a year, that gradually um, I began to see this difference in my life, that, that God was being pushed out of the center of my life. And I, and I remember thinking one Saturday morning, because that's about the only quiet time there is at the office, and... I remember thinking one Saturday morning, how am I going to add the things I know are important? How am I going to add the, the scripture reading and the Bible study and in-depth Bible studies and the prayer time? How am I going to add those to my life when it's already so busy? I get up at 5 o'clock in the morning and do some exercise. I get to the office by 7, by 7, usually by 7, uh, the phone starts ringing or email starts coming in and it doesn't stop till 10 or 11 at night. And where am I going to fit it in? Because you know, I'm old now, and I can't, I can't make it on four hours of sleep anymore. I need more than just four hours of sleep. And so I began reading through 1 Timothy, because 1 Timothy, Paul wrote the books of First and Second Timothy to, uh, to Timothy. Timothy was in Ephesus, you remember? He was writing uh, to Timothy, it says in the first chapter, that he was writing to Timothy to give him some advice about how to take care of the church at Ephesus. And I thought, what I need is some advice. And so Paul begins to, to talk to Timothy. Now, just to give you a short picture of what Ephesus is like, Ephesus was a large city, an important city in Rome. There's a major port there. Um, apparently, if you were uh, going into that part of the Roman Empire, you had to stop at the seaport at Ephesus to get in there. That was the only way to get in there. There were three, because it was a ceremony, not because that was the only way to get in there. There were three major roads there, so lots of trade going on in that city. And there Paul has Timothy, and he asks him, chapter 1, he asks him to stay. Why don't you stay in Ephesus? Here's some things that I want you to accomplish while you're in Ephesus. And so Timothy is fighting, in a sense, the same kind of battle that I'm fighting. How am I going to figure this out? And I came to chapter 4, and there at the end of the chapter, I found the answer. But first we have to go through chapter 4 to find it out, so you'll have to wait. Okay, so now don't read ahead. No, that's okay. Um, what we're going to talk about is this concept called godliness. We're going to talk about what godliness is. We're going to talk about what godliness is not. We're going to first talk about what it's not. 
Then we're going to talk about what it is. And then we're going to talk about how to cultivate godliness in your life. And the word godliness uh, comes from the um, uh, old English word godlikeness that we've kind of put together. And I think that gives us a good picture of what, of what Paul is trying to teach Timothy in this passage. Of how to develop godliness or godlikeness in his life. In the first part in chapter 4, he explains to Timothy what it's not. And I think the, the key part is in verses 3 and 4. And I'm going to be oh, preaching from the New American Standard because that's where I studied mostly. So you'll have to kind of translate in between the New International Version if you have that. But he says this, Men who forbid marriage and advocate abstaining from foods which God created to be gratefully shared in by those who believe and know the truth. So Paul warns Timothy of a continual problem with this heresy that's in the church. And uh, Bible scholars have identified this particular problem as Gnosticism, where they had to, and the idea, the broad idea of Gnosticism is that there's this special knowledge that you must obtain before you can be saved. And they believed a lot of uh, uh, other different things, but the, but the heart of the problem is that, they, that Christ is not enough, that they had to add this special knowledge from special teachers in order, for their, in order for them to be saved. Paul actually begins talking to these people in chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, where he calls this the teaching of other things, the erodidaskalo. I just love that Greek word. Isn't that a great Greek word? Anyway, I just threw it in there because I like to say that. The teaching of other things, endless myths and genealogies, which is not furthering the faith. But he says that these things are a problem, are a problem because they're adding on to the central idea of the gospel. In Galatians chapter 6, Paul writes about a similar problem to the people at Galatia. And I want to go there in Galatians chapter 1, Galatians chapter 1, because he talks to, because he's act, writing to, to a similar problem. Now, you may think that Paul wrote the letters, probably you don't, but you might think that Paul wrote the letters because he wanted to add to the books of the Bible that we'd have to memorize. But he didn't do that, right? He wrote these to address specific problems. And the book of Galatians is not a happy book, just to let you know that before we start reading this. It's uh, Ephesians, Colossians, a happy book. He loved that church. Ephesians, he loved that church, a happy book. Galatians, not like that. So he, introduction, verses 1 through 5, is just kind of a nice introduction to the church at Galatia. And then he lays into them. He says this, I am amazed that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel, which is really not another Only there are some who are disturbing you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. That's kind of the tone he probably was taking with them. Because he was not happy with them because it's the same root problem. The same problem that the people at Ephesus were fighting. The problem with Gnosticism adding on to the gospel in order to be saved. What the people in Galatia were doing is, is adding Mosaic law to the gospel in order that they might be saved. And I think the reason we want to look at this just for a little bit is because, is because um, it's, it's clearer for us to see what Paul is trying to do. Paul is talking about how this gospel in verse 7 in the New American Standard, he says, and you want to distort the gospel of Christ. You want it to, and the words, uh, some of your versions may say you want to pervert the gospel. But the actual Greek word means to reverse the gospel, 
means to reverse the gospel. This is illuminating because if you add anything to Christ, the grace of Christ plus something else, as a requirement for acceptance with God, you completely reverse the order of the gospel and make it null and void. If there's something that I have to do in order to be accepted by God, then I'm not relying upon his grace. That is why in verse 6, Paul says the false teachers are producing a different gospel, which he quickly qualifies in verse 7 as really no gospel at all. Literally, Paul says another gospel, which is not another. This is strikingly crystal clear. Another gospel is not another gospel. To change the gospel the tiniest bit is to lose it so completely that the new teaching has no right to be called a gospel. It's a critical thing that Paul is finding in Galatians and Ephesians because people are trying to always trying to add on to the gospel because they think that, that, that it needs something else. But when you do that, it's no longer good news, right? If I have to follow a set of rules in order to be saved, I know I'm going to break those. I know that I'm not going to make it. So that's not good news anymore. That's just another thing for me to stress about. It's another thing for me to wonder. Am I really going to be saved? Do I really have the special knowledge that he's talking about? The Gnostics are talking about. Do I really, am I really following the Mosaic law? If, I, if I'm wondering about that, it's not good news anymore. It's merely another gospel, which is not good news. You know, I was reading in Wired Magazine this month a fascinating article about the Facebook you remember that's what it was called if you watched the movies called the Facebook. How many people have Facebook accounts here? So enough of you. The author talked about the real purpose of Facebook. He, that, it's really an interesting article. You should read it, but, um, but not now. But you should read it because um, he talks about this concept of friending um, that, that we can only handle about 150 relationships at once. Uh, we can only hold those in our brain. And the average Facebook user has 120. But Facebook allows you to have 5,000. And there's no way that this sociologist who was studying this says that you can do that. But he says that Facebook has a different, a different purpose. And, and I have to read this because she writes so well. Think about the last time you updated your Facebook status. You probably edited that snippet of text a dozen times to get the word just right. And then, right before you posted it, cursor hovering over the share button, you likely considered how your friends were going to react. People are going to like this, you thought. Maybe I'll even get a few comments. Now, how many times have you run that same internal monologue before blurting out your opinion during a face-to-face -face chat with your best friend? I'm taking bets on the answer, and my money is on never. Every time you post something on Twitter, Facebook, Tumblr, Instagram, or now Google+, you're influencing or trying to influence how the world views you. Each carefully crafted 140-character message that goes out to the metaverse fills a publicly accessible database that defines you to people you've never met. In the end, it isn't really who you are. It's the hilarious, adorable, fascinating, intelligent, so worth friending version of you. Social media isn't about having a conversation with people you know. It's about advertising or branding yourself. It's not social. It's media. I thought that was amazing. 
But you know, when I'm thinking about this concept of godliness that we're trying to put on, I'm wondering if we're trying to brand ourselves to other people and, uh, and to God. I'm wondering if, if we talk about our quiet time in such a way that people are going to know that I spent a half hour this morning on my knees in gravel um, praying to God this morning or I spent two hours um, studying the, uh, whether or not we're using this word in the Greek or that word in the Greek. And what I'm, am I trying to impress you or am I trying to impress God? Am I bolting these kinds of, of, of religious activities on the outside of my life or are they really affecting them? Am I really hoping that by adding these activities to my life that when I get to heaven, God's going to say, accept and let me into heaven? He might. That's not what godliness is. Godliness is is not about doing activities that will enhance our personal brand before God. It's really about building a relationship with God. It's about developing a relationship with God in such a way that the relationship influences your life for a change. And it's foundational. Paul talks about this in the passage too. He says, in pointing these things out to the brethren, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, constantly nourished on the words of faith and the sound doctrine which you have been following. I like the English Standard Version of this. It says, if you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and the good doctrine you have followed. Literally, put these things before the brothers means to lay a foundation underneath them. And so godliness can't be something that we bolt on on the outside. It has to be in the foundation of our lives. And Paul is telling Timothy that the most important thing he can tell these people is that they're is that uh, their foundation has to be built on grace only as our acceptance before Christ, that the gospel really is good news because God has taken care of it. It is foundational to life, and it requires us to remind one another. I thought that was interesting that he tells Timothy to hear that as a part of reminding other people about the gospel or about this good news, that, that they the you will be helping them laying the foundation below them. Most importantly, it is a means to an end, not an end in itself. You know, sometimes we think about if we, and, and we'll do this by, by putting our, our relationship with God in a box, and we say that if I've done these eight things, then I've, whatever they are, whatever we've defined what they are, um, Philip Yancey says, don't, that we don't like people that sin differently than we do. So, and so we have this set of rules that we have to follow. And if somebody else doesn't follow those rules, then they're sinning. But anyway, that, that godliness is a means to an end. It's not the end to itself. The end is that godliness, putting on this godliness, will develop my relationship for God. Not to be, not, not the events in themselves. Does that make sense? Not to be godly. He talks about this word discipline, myself for godliness, and that simply means that, that sometimes when we get to that discipline, we think that discipline is the end in itself. If I do my Bible study, if I, if I pray, if I give money, if I, whatever my list is, if I do those five things, then I am developing my relationship with God. But I never talk about the relation, I never really get involved in my relationship with God. We'll talk more about that in a minute. But it has to be, 
It has to be that because we live in a performance-based society. One of the things that, that, is, uh, that is always a problem is that everywhere you go, you have to perform in order for people to reward you, right? If I go to work and I don't perform, if I don't do my job, I'm not eventually, depending on where you work, maybe the next day, <laughs> I'm not going to get paid. In my line of work, if I, don't, if I don't do my job, if I'm not out pushing or working on billable hours, then I'm not going to get paid at the end of the month. So everything is performance-based. And so sometimes that picture of performance trickles into our lives and becomes, um, becomes part of my relationship with God so that, so that my relationship with God becomes, am I doing the right things, therefore I have a relationship with God, rather than do I have a relationship with God? The, you see, the focus is on the things I'm doing, not on the relationship. It has to be based on the. It has to be based on the truth of the gospel. The motivation of godliness is the most critical part, and that's where we get away from the performance things. Paul says, "For it is this for for it is for this we labor and strive, because we have fixed our hope on the living God, who is the Savior of all men, especially of all believers." Now, because English is a positional language and word order matters, we'll look at this, we'll skim by this, and we'll see, for it is this, for we labor and strive. So my goal is to labor and strive. But if you look closely at this passage, if we're going to diagram this sentence, because I know you want to do that in the summer, we're going to diagram the sentence, we'll see that, that it is a causal relationship. And the first thing that has to happen is we have fixed our hope on the living God who is the savior of all men, that tells us who he is, especially believers, and then we will labor and strive. You see the difference? It is causal. Now, sometimes we'll get that backwards. If we have, like if we have a funnel, for instance, and, and we look at the funnel, let's look at this picture because I'm really proud of it. No, let's look at this picture and see if we labor and strive, then, then we think that that labor and strife will produce the hope that we need to get into heaven. But we know that's not true because we try and try and try and we fail. But the reality is that, that we fix our hope on the gospel, on God's ability to save us despite ourselves. And because we are so thrilled that God accepts us exactly the way we are, then we will labor and strive. You see the difference between the two. It has to be, this godliness also has to produce fruit. Now I want to stray outside of 1 Timothy and go into 2 Timothy 3, 4, and 5. 3, chapter 3. Paul is, talk, Paul is talking um, about the end time. And this is in the last day, difficult times will come. And he describes in chapter 3, verses 1 through 5, he describes the kinds of people that they are. They're not, they're not nice people, unlovable, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good. So you get the picture. They're not, they're not good people. But one of the things that I thought was interesting is in verse 5, it says, they hold to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power. See, that godliness that we have has to be able to affect us. And we're going to talk about at the, in, in just a minute how that happens. But that, form, that godliness has to, that we're building in our life has to have the ability to change our lives or it's kind of pointless. It has to produce fruit. Notice that Paul, going back to 1 Timothy 4, Timothy's, Paul says to Timothy, 
Let no one look down upon your youthfulness, but rather in speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity, show yourself an example of those who believe. So he asked them to look at that, uh, uh, to, uh, to change his life, to be an example. Now, if I was a young man in a church, in a very urban church, and, and Paul told me, your job is to be uh, an example to everybody else, be, that would scare me to death, because I know how I, how I mess up all the time. How is that possible? Well, that's only possible if I allow God's, uh, my relationship with God to affect my life. Now, the most important thing, when I was, uh, when I was first uh, explaining the sermon to Hillary, my youngest, she, uh, she said, that's great, Dad, how? How do I do that? You know, this is all good stuff, Dad. This is all good teaching. How do I do that? Cultivating godliness is, is the critical part. And I use the word cultivate because I think it's, uh, it's it, because it's critical to understanding how God works in our life. Our relationship with God has to be in the center of our life. And Paul reminds Timothy that in verses 15 and 16 when he asks him to take pains with these things, be absorbed in them so your progress may be evident to all, pay close attention to yourself and your teaching, persevere, those things, taking pains with yourself, means to revolve them in my mind. So they have to be some, uh, foremost in the center of my, our brain. And they have to be those kinds of things that Paul wants Timothy, this aspect of godliness. And he says, pay close attention to yourself and your teaching because it can get away from us and be absorbed in it so closely ingrained that it becomes second nature. You know, last week, Randy uh, talked about Hebrews 5.14, one of my other favorite passages, um, because because it gives us a picture that by training, then we'll be able to respond to the gospel. And my favorite illustration of that is, my favorite illustration of that is the uh, um, uh, guy who is teaching self-defense classes to women. And he says, when I'm teaching them how to, how to do something, it takes about uh, two hours to, to learn the moves that they need to move in order to uh, fight off an attacker that's larger than them takes about two hours to teach him what to do. But he says it takes a lot longer than that for them to practice it so that when they're attacked, they don't have to say, no, wait a minute, let me think. I'm supposed to grab your arm and then move over here. He said, what I want them to do is not even think about it. I want them, their training to be so solid that the minute they know they're under attack, then their body just instantly responds. And Paul said our, our relationship with God should be the same thing that we, that should be so closely ingrained with us that it becomes second nature because that's exactly what God's trying to do to us. And we are to cultivate that. Now, how do we cultivate that? In our front lawn, we had a sidewalk put in and, and it was all um, dirt for a while there because, because that's what happens when you put concrete in. And the, and um, we sat there waiting for, or Karen actually waited for me to, because uh, I said, okay, what we need to do is get a tiller, and we're going to till all this up. We're going to get the ground all nice, and we're going to lay it down a bed of seeds and put straw on top of it, and it's going to grow up great, right? Well, she got tired of waiting on me to go get the tiller and stuff. So she got out a hoe one night, and she hoed up the ground, and so, so it was pretty smooth. And, and then she went inside and got some seed that she bought um, that was special for... Um, uh, shaded area because we have if you've been over to my house you know we have this huge pine that shades the front yard so we had to get special seed that that does better in shade 
And then we just laid it down, but we didn't have any straw to put over it, and Hillary hadn't mowed the lawn yet. And uh, <laughs> I think she was recovering from surgery, so she probably had an excuse. But she, but, so we didn't have anything to put over it, so we just laid out this bed of seeds, and we were hoping that we weren't just going to feed the birds with that seed, right? And, and so we waited, and then Hillary finally got the lawn mowed, probably because it stopped raining long enough to do that. And then we put the, the grass clippings on it, and I was happy. Because, you know, grass, it's green. So when we got that all done, it looked like we had a lawn there. Perfect, right? We don't need to do anything else except the grass kind of turned brown later. And then I thought maybe we should put another layer on it so that it looks green or spray painted or something. But Karen said, no, we should just wait because we want that grass to grow up and uh, want the grass to grow up. And I'm, how's that going to happen? And, and uh, so we waited and we waited and we waited and we waited, and when it was dry, Karen watered it. And then one glorious morning, I came out, 5 o'clock in the morning, I looked outside, and there was grass. It was an amazing, it was a miracle, literally, because the grass had grown up, and the grass is a seed, and it comes from God. Now, I didn't do a Vulcan mind meld on the grass to get it to grow, right? I didn't have a special ray gun that I used to make the seeds open up and the grass, grass to sprout, and I didn't. I didn't do any of that. No, what I did was what Karen did. What Karen did was cultivate the ground perfectly so that it was ready to receive the grass. And then after a time, then the grass grew. See, our relationship with God isn't something that we make happen. We can't just say, you can't just say to a baby, grow, because that doesn't work, right? Then you just scare them and they start crying. You t- but if you feed a baby... And take care of a baby when it's sick. Eventually, it's just going to grow. You can't stop it. I have two grown girls to show you. You just can't stop it. They just keep growing up. When our relationship with God, if we cultivate the ground in such a way that if we cultivate the ground, then our relationship with God will grow. And now, it may not grow as fast as we want it to grow. There's an illustration about this. We want a silver bullet, right? Here's my relationship with God, and I want, to, I want it to work right now. But it doesn't work like that. Um, it's kind of like, like an acorn. So if, if I had a slab of concrete, and I, and I wanted to uh, break that slab of concrete with the acorn, you can imagine what's going to happen to the acorn. It's not going to happen. But if I take the acorn, and I put it underneath the slab, the edge of the slab of the concrete, and I wait... And I wait, eventually, that acorn is going to grow up into a tree and it'll flip over or maybe even crack in half that concrete. But it takes time. And we have to cultivate the ground in order for that to happen. A relationship with God means we have to allow him, as I said before, to influence us. You know, when I have a relationship with God, it, it, um, I have to allow that relationship to affect me. Now, I, as I said, I have two girls... Tw- 20 and 26, and they're teaching me to be an amazing husband because when they're both home, it it works really well for them, for Karen, because when I say something wrong or do the wrong thing or I'll say, I'm just going to sit here while while you finish up the dishes, I'll hear, what did you say, Dad? And that's my clue to say, oh, wait, maybe I said something wrong just a few minutes ago. And so they began to, to train me to, be, to care for Karen the way she deserves to be cherished. 
right? And, but I have to allow them to influence me. You know, sometimes, I don't what are you talking about? What did I say wrong? I don't, I'm not in the mood. But if I allow them to, if I allow them to train me, then I will, then eventually, someday, I'll be a great husband, an amazing husband, right? Just another 30 or so years ago. The purpose of godliness is to become like God as we were meant to be. And that means to allow God to influence our life. Now, in that relationship with God, I have to be able to hear him and, he has, and, and talk to him. And when I hear God, that's my, in, in the way that I hear God best is by uh, in-depth study of the word and by journaling. And if I do those two things, then I'm going to be pretty good at hearing God. And if I want to talk to God, then of course I use prayer time. First I have to remember who God is, and then I have to uh, listen to God. And what's the amazing thing that's going to happen is that God is going to change who I am if I allow him. If I listen when God says, um, what did you say, Tim? If I listen to those times when God says that, he's going to change me. And that is the essence of godliness. God can change anything in your life. One of, the, one of the saddest things is when people say, you know, that sin is too big or that habit is too hard. And God says, I have never met a habit I couldn't break if you allow me to work in your life. I've never met a sin that's too big that I can't forgive. What God wants to do is he wants to take our lives, the broken, messed up, screwed up lives that we have and he wants to make something beautiful out of them. Mm -hmm.